we're going to be looking at this morning, Is My Family Normal? My family and I were sitting down, and we were, some of us, um, I have five daughters, and we, watched, we were watching this uh, documentary on ballet, so you can tell who voted, who got to watch what that evening. And I was struck because um, they were interviewing these um, young women. Um, they were, some of them were in high school, some of them were in middle school, um, and young men um, that were involved in, in uh, the New York, one of the New York ballet companies. So it's like downtown New York, super competitive. They all want to get these apprenticeships because their life dream is to like be professional dancer. And uh, they interviewed this one, uh, I think middle school, young teenage um, gal and her parents. And, I, and she's involved in this ballet company. And they said, oh yeah, and she also does competitive horseback riding. New York City, downtown. There's not horseback riding in downtown New York City, just so you know, there's no pastures really available. So in my mind, I'm just thinking, how do you do that? Downtown New York, your, your kid's involved, and then somewhere out in the country, it's like this green, you know, barns, just like what you, like it could be in North Dakota somewhere, but it's obviously not. How do you do that? And uh, they're interviewing the, the, the parents, and then, um, and uh, the mom says, um, something about like, well, they really only have, our kids only have these opportunities once, and I just love to see her light up when she gets to do what she loves. And that's why they do it, right? That's probably why some of you parents do what you do for your kids, because you love, like I do, love to see them light up when they get to do something that they love. What's normal for families today? What's normative might be, what is most families' experiences like? I want you to think about that. Your experience, families that you know, families that you're um, around. We're going to look at a chapter in the book of Joshua that I think will give us some things to think about, about experiencing family the way that God intended and has intended family to be experienced. What are some things that are normal? You know, in our house... What's normal, might be normal in your house, is once in a while, the siblings don't get along, just on occasion. Um, what's pretty normal in our house, there's, there's stuff going on. Um, we go on vacations here and there. Um, what's normal um, in our house is that we um, eat meals together, um, usually evening meals, but as our kids get older, less and less of the time, we're all there because they have work and other activities. Um, what's a little normal for me in my house is once in a while I get irritated by my family. Sometimes there's bickering, but not very often. Oftentimes there's, there's, um, there's people that are sharing, and other times there's people that are pretty selfish. Once in a while, anyways. I don't know about your house. Um, social commentators have observed this. Multiple people, I've had multiple sources that Families today in our country can have this tendency, this is just a, a broad observation, is that, they ha that more and more families have rich experiences, but when they report on how they feel about their family, more of them have rich experiences, but there's less relational connection than they would prefer. In other words, they're doing things and experiencing things together, which is good. Make memories. We like to do that at our house. We try to think of what could we do on this vacation to make a memory. That's one of the things that we want to do. And there's relational things that can happen in the midst of making a memory. 
having an experience. But by and large, people have reported regularly and commentators have observed that there can be a, a, a like the phrase would be relationally rich, or, I mean, sorry, experience rich, relationally poor. Poor then would be preferred. So, I mean, if I, were, I can look at the New York City family and say, well, I get that. If, if I was trying to drive my kid to downtown New York and then drive them to upstate New York to do lessons, like how do you have time for each other, right? It's easy to point to other people whose schedule and circumstances seems, seems wilder and crazier than mine, but actually that same effect can be happening in my own life, in our own lives. What we're going to look at in Joshua 24 so the first five books of the Bible are Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and then the next book is Joshua. Joshua is mostly a story. There's a little bit of geography in Joshua. And Joshua 24, at the very end of the chapter, actually in Joshua 24, for those of you who like to study, you could pull your Bible out or open up your app to Joshua 24 because Joshua actually summarizes the first five books of the Bible in a speech that he gives, because he's the leader of Israel at this time. And so he really refers to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy in the early portions of Joshua 24, which I won't go through, because that's not the point of my message this morning, to give you a history lesson. But then he, as he's going through the history of his people, the end of the chapter is probably the most famous uh, definitely the most famous verse near the end of the chapter of Joshua 24. It might be the second most known verse in Joshua. There's one at the beginning of Joshua about being strong and courageous that is really well known. But this one is probably one you may have seen somewhere else where he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's, it's one of those verses that you might see on a coffee mug or your grandma might have cross-stitched and put on the wall it's that popular that it's been around, or on a calendar or something like that. Um, that's really what, where we're going to head, is to understand how Joshua got to the point where he's made that statement. What we're going to do is remember, because what Joshua does in chapter 24 is he causes people to remember. He, he challenges the people of Israel to remember several things, and I think we can have some things that we'll be challenged to remember if we look at this chapter. Let's look at Joshua 24. I'm not going to read the chapter, but I'm going to do an overview, and I'm going to jump around to emphasize a few of his themes. In Joshua 24, verse 1, um, Joshua, um, actually in Joshua 24, verse 2, he says this, um, Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham, and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. I'm going to pause there for a moment. That might not be a verse that you think there's a lot that has to do with you there, but actually what he's mentioning at the very beginning is setting up one of the main points of this passage. And I think we can have a tendency, just like we might overlook this verse, to overlook the point that Joshua, I think, is embedding in mentioning this. There's a lot of genealogies in the Old Testament. Um, and in the New Testament, actually, the genealogies of Jesus. This is the beginning of sort of a genealogy, the n numbering of ancestors. But what, what Joshua is pointing out is a pattern that started with Abraham's family, I think. And do you see the pattern? The pattern with Abraham's family was that they worshipped other gods. It was sort of a family trait, and actually, throughout the book of 
in Joshua 24 and in Joshua 23, if you read that, Joshua is warning repeatedly again and again about watch out for this family pattern. So that's the first point this morning is to remember that your family, and every one of you has one, whether you have your own kids or you came from a family, you have a family, your family has patterns that were passed on to you. And it's really important to remember that. Joshua repeats it over and over in this book. Your family has patterns that were passed on to you. You may have heard this story before. There was a teenage girl who was in the kitchen helping her mom get prepared for Easter. That's coming in a few weeks here. And they were making the ham. And her mom, she watched her mom cut one end off of the ham and then the other end off of the ham, put it into a pan, and then put it in the oven. She seemed like a waste. Why do you cut the ends off the ham? Mom, why do you cut the ends off of the ham? The mom said, I think maybe it helps absorb the juices or something. I'm not sure. It's just how I've always done it because my mom did it that way. Why don't you ask your grandma? The teenage daughter calls her grandma. Grandma, I'm helping mom make the Easter ham, and she cut both the ends off, and she said she doesn't know why she does it. She thought maybe it's to absorb the juices or something. Why do you cut the ends off the ham? And the grandma says, I can't remember. It's the way my mom always did it. Why don't you call your great-grandma? Luckily, she was still alive. So the teenager called the great-grandma. Great-grandma, I'm with my mom, and neither she nor grandma knows why they cut the ends off the ham for Easter. Why do you cut the ends off of ham for Easter? Is it because it helps absorb all the juices? And the great-grandma laughed and said, no. I just never had a pan big enough to hold the whole ham. (laughs) Probably heard that story, right? Or something like it. Guys, that's a funny story. But what's real is that we have family patterns, things that we do without thinking about it, knowing about them, or even understand why we do them, that come from our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, and maybe like the people of Israel, even farther back than that. Joshua said in 2419, one of the places where he emphasized this, he's asking the people of Israel, will you choose the Holy One God, Yahweh, as your God? And they say yes, and he doesn't quite believe them. And you might think that's not very good leadership. I'm not sure if you said, uh, if I I said, will you worship God? And you said, yes, we'll worship God. I said, I don't think you're going to be able to. Vote of confidence, right? Not really. What Joshua was pointing out, I think, is you have this tendency in your family that I'm not sure you're fully aware of how strong it is in you. In 2419, he says this. He says, the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, including the land of Amorites. He says, we too will worship the Lord. That's what the people say, because he is our God. And Joshua tells them, you will not be able to worship the Lord. Because he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions and sins. And he's not saying that God won't forgive at all, but the language that he's using there, he's a jealous God, he's a holy God, that comes out of the Ten Commandments. It comes out of the Third Commandment in Exodus 20. 
he's referring back to the covenant that God made with them, the promise. This is how the relationship is supposed to work. And he says, and, and, and God says this in Exodus 20, he says, I, the Lord, am your God. I am a jealous God. And he says this. This is one of these verses that for a long part of my life, I didn't quite understand why this was in the Bible or what it meant. It says, God will bring the consequences of the father's iniquity, the father's sin, your ancestor's sin, on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing faithful love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. Is God saying that he's going to punish me for my great-grandfather's sin? No, that's not what he's saying. It says punish in this, in this, some translations say punish, but really what it means is that you'll have a tendency to follow in. You're going to have a pattern that's set up, that you're going to have some of those negative patterns, and this idolatry pattern, this was the idolatry command, is going to be one that will have a tendency, if you aren't fully devoted to me, you're going to pass that on, it's going to have a tendency to trip you up three or four or more generations down the road. By the way, this is, a, this is some, um, maybe just some general relationship advice. If you're good friends with someone or maybe with your spouse, watch your tone if you ever say something like this. You're just like your dad. You're just like your mom. Actually, better advice is just don't say that. <laughs> um, however, I want to tell you this. Understand that you probably are in some positive and some negative ways, like your dad and or your mom. And while it might not be easy to have it pointed out, and definitely don't do this in the midst of an argument, that you might have some of those same traits that you're both frustrated by, know that that is, in general, going to be a tendency. Awareness of the fact that there are patterns like that in your life and our lives goes a long way in the context of a family. So... Here's a negative pattern that I've observed in my life that I know from stories goes back at least to my great-grandfather, who I never met. I got to meet my great-grandma. She was alive until I was in my 20s. I never met my great-grandfather, but I know from stories that my great-grandfather and the men on my dad's side of the family have had a tendency towards expressing themselves more harshly than is helpful, might be a kind way to put it. And I could make an excuse and say, maybe you've seen this, maybe in a movie. That's who I am. That's who we are. That's what Schultzes do. Put up with it. That's who you married. That's who you got. Or I could recognize that some of the patterns that have been passed down to me, and again, it's not just because my great-grandfather and so on had this issue that I have this issue, right? There's personal responsibility there as well. But there can be a pattern that if I'm aware of it, it actually empowers me to realize it's something that I'll have to put intentional effort into to overcome. Kind of like idolatry for Israel. It takes a lot of effort to overcome that pattern. Now here's a positive pattern. Both sides, my kids get this benefit, by the way. Both sides of our families, my wife's side and my side, go back at least two, three, or more generations of people who have chosen to follow Jesus. That's an asset. That's a huge asset. My mom has this story. She tells of how my grandfather, who I never got to meet, he died early in life. He was at a church meeting, and he decided to go down and put his trust in Christ, and all of them did. 
her mom, she did, her brother, and her sister all started following Christ at one event. And now she's done that, and now we're doing that, and that's three generations. And it goes back farther on my wife's side. And that's an asset that we can lean into a pattern. You know, the positive pattern is listed in Exodus 22, 20 as well, right? You'll have a tendency to punish the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation, and you'll bless those who love you for a thousand generations. It's really helpful to be aware of those patterns that have been passed on to you. Here's why. If, if not, you're going through life not knowing why you cut the ends off the ham. It's confusing. It'll be more confusing to you and your kids. It's been, it's been enlightening for me to understand some of the positive and negative patterns that have been passed on to us through the generations in our family. And I think it's been helpful to our kids, although I'm sure they're going to point things out that we did that we didn't notice at some point later when they're adults. Here's the second thing to remember. So first of all, remember that you have family patterns that have been passed on to you. Secondly, I'm going to refer to a couple of verses in Exodus 24, verses 4, 8, and 11. So what, what Joshua is doing is he's recounting the history of his people. You could call it the history of his family, his extended, large, long family. He's going to go back several centuries in this account. First of all, he says, Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt. That's for 430 years, his ancestors were in Egypt waiting to get delivered, okay? And then he mentions later that God brought the people in, out of, to the land of the Amorites who lived beyond the Jordan. That means the other side of Jordan, that was 40 years. So God brought his people out of Egypt, but for 40 years, so for four centuries plus, they were stuck in Egypt without getting redeemed. For 40 years, that's four decades, they were wandering in the wilderness. Now, I can't tell the whole story about why that happened, but it was four decades before they got to even put foot in their eternal, their purpose, their destiny, which was called the promised land. And then he says, and then you crossed the Jordan and came to Jericho. The Jordan and Jericho is where the people of Israel got to go into the promised land. That was 14 years ago, 440 and 14 years before God did what they were hoping he would do. Here's what you need to remember. Play the long game in your family. God is not afraid of a lot of time going past to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in your family. Whether it's your immediate family, whether it's your extended family, whether it's the genealogy, the ancestral history of your family. 430 years? You guys want to sign up for a timeline like that? What about 40? How about 14? I'm not really too excited about any of them. God doesn't bat an eye at the long game. In fact, the story of God in the Bible would say he at times prefers it. There are moments where he, sh- he comes through and does things really quickly, and a lot happens in a short amount of time. But if you read the Bible, the way that God tends to work is longer than you and I would prefer. Do you guys like to play card games? We, we like to play card games. It's been a while since I've played the game of hearts, but from what I can remember, you don't want to get hearts when you play hearts. You're trying to, every heart you get is a point, and the winner is the one who gets the lowest score. So you're trying to avoid hearts the whole time. How can I slough them to you? How can I get you to take the ones that I have? How can I avoid getting a whole bunch of them? And one person will get 100 points, and whoever has the low score at that point wins the game. There's another strategy 
than slowly trying to get your hearts to other people. It's called shooting the moon. And in shooting the moon, rather than avoiding the hearts, you want to get all the hearts, ace through the two. But you have to get them all. If you get ace through the two, guess what happens to your opponents? You would normally have gotten 13, but instead your opponents all get 26, double, 26 points. Guys, we can tend to want to shoot the moon when it comes to our plans for our families. Like, let's just change things really fast and make things happen really quickly. But you know the percentage chance that you're going to shoot the moon in hearts? It's like 0.00013% that you're going to shoot the moon in hearts. It's really hard. The, 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 the cards just have to come together, and it probably helps if you play with some people who are new to the game. <laughs> Joshua says this after he says, I don't think you'll be able to worship God. In verse 23, he says this. He gives them a very practical thing. 24, verse 23, he says, Get rid of the foreign gods that are among you. Notice he didn't necessarily say that you have in your house, although that might have been the case. He was softening it a little bit. That are among you and turn your hearts to the Lord God of Israel. More than likely what he's saying is get rid of these little statues that are all over the place that represent idols and that we think of classically as idols. Just throw them out. And you're saying right now, that's the people are saying we're going to worship God. Do that as 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 a step in the right direction toward you following him for a lifetime. Guys, a small win can actually be something that's a big gain over time. If Israel had decided to go out right then, go home after we're done with this gathering and throw that thing, that item away, I actually think they would have benefited. They didn't, though. If you read the rest of the Old Testament, they didn't do that. What is something that you can think of right now that's keeping you from God, that's preventing you from being close to God, from following through on your desire to follow him? Does God want you to throw it out after church today? Just one little thing. Let's flip it around. What is something that you have known you could do, a small thing that would help you to get closer to God? Is there something That if you did this little thing or that little thing, maybe it's as simple as if I put my alarm clock from 6.30 to 6.15, that one little decision, because I'll be awake 15 minutes longer, will empower me to read a chapter in my Bible, and that will help me be a little bit closer to God. I can tell you that a 15-minute decision, that doesn't sound like much, does it? 15 minutes more? If you made a decision to turn your alarm clock 15 minutes earlier... Over the course of a year, two, three, four, five, 14, 40 years, the benefit of that one small decision is pretty immeasurable in your life and actually in your families as well. Is there something that you could do, a small win that could lead to a big game? Friends, God is totally fine with playing the long game. You could have, and by the way, I'm a little bit like this. I've probably done this to my family. Like, I get a brand new vision of we got to, like, overhaul everything and, like, do everything awesome. And we're going to do all these things together, have this family worship night every night of the week. And we're going to get up in the morning. We're all going to sit around and sing three songs. And then we're going to share the Bible. It doesn't last long. 
But 15 minutes earlier, if I get up and I start to change, that can actually have a big impact. A phrase that we use regularly around our house, and I use this with my wife, and I use it when I talk to other friends, other friends who are parents, is I'm hoping that my kids will thank me when they're 30. Not three, not 13, 30. Which means they probably aren't going to thank me when they're 13 sometimes. Or eight, or 14, or even 19. I'm hoping that they'll thank me when they're 30. God is not afraid of the long game. Remember, play the long game. Here's the third thing to remember. Joshua 24, 15 says this. This is near the end of this passage. Actually, it's in the middle of it. He says, if it doesn't please you to worship the Lord, choose for yourselves today which will you worship, the gods your ancestors worship beyond the Euphrates River or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living? Those are two groups of gods that aren't Yahweh. You could choose one of them if you want, if you're not going to choose the God. He's challenging them to choose one. And here's what I think you need to remember, and this is what Joshua was pointing out. This is why he had a lack of confidence in their ability when they said we will worship Yahweh. Our lives reveal who we worship. My life reveals who I really worship. It is seen by the people who observe my life most closely. And if you're in a family, you know who sees your life most closely. Joshua thinks, and he's proven correct, that these people are probably overstating their commitment to God. You and I have gods that are revealed by how we function in life. Our families might have gods that are revealed by how we function in life. Or it reveals that God is the center, one or the other, like Joshua. It's revealed. And to be honest, we all have probably times in our lives when really the way that I'm living is not revealing that Jesus Christ is the center of everything. Because I'm putting way too much time in at work, and really what I'm worshiping is accomplishing things or getting ahead in life. We all have those sorts of things. So think through your life. Is my life reflecting what I say I worship? Who I say I worship? This is for you, between you and God, by the way. I'm not going to point it out to you. Uh, actually, I'm not actually bold enough to do what Joshua says. I don't actually think you're as committed as you say you are. I'm not going to do that. Um, that, I think, is more of God's decision, but I think it's really helpful for us to reflect on that. And I'll say this, the reason why this is important is because when it comes to our families, more is caught than is taught. Uh, two, two, two summers I spent in Colorado, I learned how to fly fish. And it's really fun. It's kind of like a combination between art and activity and meditation. That's how I think of fly fishing. And I was pretty good at it. I actually taught a couple dozen people how to do it over those summers. I'd take groups out exchange equipment. Actually, one summer, David Dunham was out there with me, and we would give each other our equipment, and we'd take friends out and teach them how to do it. It's, you can, I can tell you how to do it right now. I, I can still tell you. I could list out, this is what you have to do and watch out for it. But you know what I can't do right now? I can't show you how to do it. Not well. I mean, I could sort of do it, but it's kind of like a hack job. It's really not very good. It's really, really rusty. What are... What, what, I, what, are, what is something in your life that is a little rusty? That it used to be something that you were, when it comes to your walk with God, that you were pretty good at, but right now it's not really something that you could catch. 
your, your kids could catch. That's kind of what's being pointed to is that our lives reveal some of that. It applies to all of us. So whether you're a single parent who's trying to make ends meet, whether you're single and unmarried and you're not really sure how this has to do with your family, guess what? Your habits before you get married and have a family will tend to follow you into your future family if God gives you one. Maybe you're overwhelmed with little ones, but maybe there's just a small shift you could make that would make a big difference, like a five-minute difference. Or maybe it's, you're a parent of teen and you're struggling with how to help your family adjust to this transition into adulthood. Let me tell you this. This is something I've just told my kids. I'm sorry to my older kids. I have some of them here. But your younger siblings are getting a better parenting experience than you did. I wish it were different, but I'm going to tell you what, that should happen in all of our families if we're committed to growing and changing. I should be a better parent today than I was 20 years ago when I welcomed in my first little one. If you're a parent of teen, just keep growing and changing, and don't feel bad that your younger kids get a better experience of you than your older ones did, because you're going to grow and change through that time. Grandparents, maybe you're trying to figure out how to influence your family in a new stage of life. Whatever it is, I think that you can probably, if you look at your own life, one of, the, one of the things you can do is you can say, how can my life more fully reflect who I say I worship? And is there an adjustment that I can make? Lastly, I want to leave you with hope. And I'll, I'll invite the worship team to come on up because we're going to sing a song that emphasizes this last point. Verse 24, 15, which is that famous verse, as for me and my family, we will worship the Lord. You know what that verse says to me, guys? It says that you can influence your family's trajectory. You can't control the outcome. I'd, I'd love to. Seth preached a few weeks ago, the week before we had a break last week, um, that a lot of us would like to control the outcome of our lives, the outcome of the people's lives around us, our families, but we don't get to. They get to control it. But you can influence. You can influence the trajectory of your family. Joshua influenced the trajectory of his family by the decisions that he made. And you and I can do it too. You may not do it perfectly. Actually, I guarantee you won't do it perfectly. But you can do it well enough to make a significant difference. This morning, I hope that you and I can remember to get familiar with our family patterns, to play the long game, to remember that our lives reflect who we really worship, and also that you and I can influence the trajectory of our family if we do those things. Let's stand for closing prayer. We're going to sing this song, Cornerstone, which really talks about